The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Today's guest is a great friend of mine and you'll probably be able to hear in our voices how much we enjoy each other's company. She's also a fellow Aussie. Today, though, we're going to talk about her book, The Regulars. It's funny and thoughtful. It's about a young woman who, after discovering she has the breast cancer gene, embarks on an unforgettable bucket list adventure. I think you'll be able to tell that Georgia and I were curled up on a couch having this conversation. So get your cup of tea and join in. I'm so, so excited because Georgia Clark is finally on the pod. Welcome. (laughs) So nice to be here. Thrilled to be here. Well, so Georgia has written many books. This is the second adult novel. Correct. Is that right? And it's called The Bucket List. Um, What is this bucket list and who is Lacey, our main character? The bucket list is a specific type of bucket list. It's not a travel bucket list. It's a boob bucket list. And that's because the heroine of the book, Lacey Whitman, who is 25 years old, is diagnosed with the BRCA1 gene mutation, which is the breast cancer gene, which puts her at a extremely high risk factor of getting breast cancer genetically. So in order to decide what to do about it, she and her friends create a boob bucket list. All the things that she wants to do with and for her boobs before a possible surgery, which is obviously one of the options that she has, a preventative mastectomy to remove her breasts. The other is ongoing surveillance, sort of three monthly screenings. So the book is called The Bucket List and follows her adventures as she sort of starts to tick off this list and a lot of complications ensue. They do. It's tricky to know how, because I don't want to give too much away Mm -hmm. because there are so many kind of twists and turns and romantic fun things. But what are a couple of those things on the bucket list? So the bucket list runs the gamut from being fairly tame to more X-rated. And that's because Lacey is from a small town and she, while she works, she works as a trend forecaster in fashion and she looks like someone, if you met her, you would assume that she was quite sexually liberated or quite open, but she's actually fairly sexually inexperienced. And so this diagnosis and the realities of what it means makes her, it's a wake up call. And she realizes that she doesn't feel like she's done a lot of things and had a lot of experiences. So some of those things are um, sunbathing topless or wearing a particularly revealing dress. She calls it a boobs on parade dress, like the women on The Bachelor wear. And then some of those things are more risque, having sex in public, having a threesome, things that are more um, about having sort of sexual experiences that she wants to try. How did you come up with this idea? you know, that some, a woman, a young woman would be struggling with this particular type of cancer? Yeah, I am not a carrier of the BRCA1 gene mutation myself, uh, but the story had its genesis in a cancer scare of my own. I was on book tour for my last book, The Regulars, in Sydney, where I'm from, and, and where we're both from. (laughs) And I uh, had a pap smear and during my routine breast examination, my doctor found a lump on my breast. And 
I was scheduled for an ultrasound on my press day, which was the first day I was doing live television and a bunch of interviews and a presentation to Simon & Schuster Australia and my book launch. So in between all of those things, I had to sneak off to get a ultrasound and obviously I was terrified and took me down this path of what if, what would I do, where would I stay, complicated by the fact I am Australian, that I live here in New York and what would that mean? I don't have proper medical insurance here and I'd have to move back to Australia and where would I stay and my parents aren't in. It was just like a lot of thoughts going on as well as just the terrifying um, you know, threat to your own body and, and health um, and future. And the lump was benign and I found out straight away. So it was this very intense 24 hours, uh, but the whole experience really stayed with me. It certainly didn't just be like, oh, well, I'm not thinking about that ever again. So I started to think about what would happen and sort of coupled with I knew about preventative mastectomies from Angelina Jolie, of course, who sort of famously brought them to the public forefront. And when I first read her op-ed, I was very overwhelmed by that and found the idea extremely confronting. But the more it sort of bubbled away in the back of my brain, I realised what a incredibly powerful sort of feminist choice this would be for any woman Um, to take control of their body in such a radical way and to remove um, a body part. I mean, you you can kind of rebuild your breasts, obviously, and have reconstructive surgery, but you're removing all of the breast tissue so that that cancer can't form in those tissues. Um, And I was just so in awe of those women and it seemed like a story that people weren't really talking about and we are sort of starting to have more conversations about women's health issues and women's sexuality but we hadn't seen it so much in like a popular culture conversation and in a way that was sort of accessible and um, there's a lot of, I did a lot of research obviously and there's a lot of memoirs that are very serious and sombre and of course like we need to make space for that kind of um, those dialogues but I wanted to take a slightly different angle into it. It does feel so unusual because it's fun and genuinely sexy, the book, and it's lovely to kind of reframe what cancer can be for young women Mm -hmm. around that. It just made me think of a woman I interviewed who started this um, vibrator company. Mm. I'll I'll remember it and put it in the notes of the show, but Polly Rodriguez is her name, but she um, had a cancer scare and I think a, a nurse that she knew said, look, when you're going through chemo or her treatment, you should try and masturbate. Mm -hmm. And I think for her it was quite, uh, you know, why would I be doing that when I'm, you know, going through this terrible thing? And just that experience led her to start a company that is all about kind of empowering women with their sexuality at all stages. But she, I think she was only 27 or 28. And it's just so interesting to kind of reframe what, I don't know how cancer affects young women's bodies. Yeah, certainly. And certainly it's important to be clear that Lacey doesn't have breast cancer um, and that would be a very different story and probably one that wouldn't have afforded such a sort of a comic lens to it. She's at risk for getting breast cancer, at high risk for it, and so it is a high-stakes situation. But, um, you know, when the story starts, she's... And this is what sort of makes the whole decision so complicated, perfectly healthy. But I think the idea of looking at sexuality as something that isn't just the domain of the young and the beautiful, and that that is definitely how we see it portrayed in society, advertisements, movies, that, you know, if you're young and beautiful, of course, you're going to be wanting to have a lot of sex, which is another conversation altogether. But the idea of if you've experienced any kind of loss, whether it be a body part, whether it be loss through aging, that that does not mean that you lose your sexuality. You just reframe your sexuality and that people with disabilities have a sex life. People who have, you know, gone through illness have a sex life and that it's definitely 
something that I'm interested in thinking about and talking about because for Lacey, if she was to get a vasectomy, she would lose a lot of feeling in her breasts and that sort of helps motivate some of her experiences because she sort of thinks, well, if I go through with this, I might not be able to experience this Mm, anymore. These sensations again. Exactly, yeah. Um, This just reminds me, so your book has prompted me to have conversations with people about boobs and things. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) But I was talking to a friend who does have the gene Mm -hmm. and she went to a conference to kind of learn more about it and she said that she asked a question that was, you know, if you have the mastectomy, what, what kind of sensation do you have afterwards? And she said all these plastic surgeons, mostly men, mm. couldn't answer. Right. They said, we don't really know. And this man stood up in the audience, fully tattered up like man, and said, I know more than the you guys know and I will share my story. He's a tattoo artist that tattoos on the nipples. The nipples. Yeah. And he's the most sought after guy. And he goes, so I talk to women all the time to un- to try and understand, you know, what what's going on for them specifically and what they want. And he was able to share some stories. And then he goes, and my daughter's here who's 20 and he's teaching her how to be the you know, the best nickel tattoo artist. That's awesome. And I was like, oh my gosh. But purely from reading your book and kind of starting to have these conversations, like all these stories just come out. I didn't know she had had the gene. Yeah, gene mutation. We actually all have those, the genes, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, but when they're mutated, they're not doing their job properly and that's when you're at high risk. So it's actually a gene mutation. Okay. Mm. And you just earlier told me that you have done the 23andMe and so you actually found out that you don't have that gene. I'm just thinking of myself, I I don't know if I do or not. What was that process like? Yeah, I did 23andMe um, somewhat as like a, they were sort of pitching it as you can find out what is in your, you know, family history that you can look out for and prep for and I, and I, um, did the test, but it was interesting because the your BRCA status comes up as part of that test. And I this was years before I started this book, and so it didn't really register as, and I was negative, so it didn't really register as much for me. But there's a lot to think about in terms of getting genetic testing and being prepared for it. And the main character of Lacey finds out this isn't a spoiler because it happens more or less page one, chapter one. She. Uh, gets the test, but she gets the test in the way that she would take like an HIV AIDS test, more to confirm a clean bill of health than any real concern that that is something that she might have. So she she's in fairly deep denial yeah. about her um, family life, which sort of starts to uh, like unspool as the book goes on. But for her, it is a big shock. She wasn't prepared for that information and it really sort of throws a spanner into the works for her. And it is worth thinking about, like, if you're considering getting tested, just to be aware of what you might do with that information if it is um, something that you are not expecting and that usually if you are, if you think that you're high risk, which means that you have a a family history of um, breast cancer or a cancer, then to see a genetic counsellor beforehand. Genetic, genetic counsellor will talk you through your options and what's on the table and what you would do if and all of these sort of questions so that you can feel more empowered going into the situation. Because certainly feeling empowered in a medical situation is just not something that a lot of people experience, especially in this country where, you know, um, it's so difficult and expensive and complicated and the system doesn't really feel like it's on your side. And I think particularly with something like BRCA or any kind of um, preventative surgery, like you mentioned, like all of these malplastic surgeons, that it is something that from my research and experience of talking to women um, who have gone through something similar to this, to to sort of have, feel like you're talking to to n- humans that are on your side, like I've definitely heard of uh, women who have gone to see doctors who have tried to 
tell them, no, oh, I wouldn't lose your breasts. Like that's what's making you a woman, you know, and things like that, which is just so ludicrous when you're thinking about, well, they might kill me, then I won't be anything. So, yeah. you know, like, yeah, there's, it's, it's complicated. There is a certain scene in the book with a male plastic surgeon that made me particularly angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which everyone can read about. But I guess, yeah, for the research, because you really wanted to get this right and you need to get it right, which mm-hmm. I think you do. Um, did you start to find women who had the gene and had gone through different parts of the process? Yeah, I really enjoy research actually. And so, and I'm not afraid of a cold email. I will definitely um, start to throw out as many lines in the water as soon as I decide that I want to work on a project. So I made contact with a couple of um, pre-viver organizations. So pre-viver is the community around women who take preventative like measures. So survivor, pre-viver and um, force facing our risk of cancer empowered and bright pink and started to and did sort of interviews with um, women who worked there and through them were able to kind of reach out to their communities and essentially like a journalist would find a contact it's sort of how it works for me as well like you start to find contacts and connections and people that you can go back to and sometimes it's just one interview but best case scenario is you sort of make these relationships with people that you can keep going back to and asking questions and asking more and more specific questions as the scenes really shape up. And um, so I really do like doing in-person interviews. I mean, a lot of them were obviously on Skype because people weren't always in New York and as well as a lot of reading, uh, going like reading memoirs and articles and searching out um, storylines in similar, um, there wasn't really a lot in popular fiction, but there's some documentaries and things like that. And um, really trying to, um, it's definitely challenging because like anything, everyone has a different point of view and those points of view are often subjective, like you're gathering objective facts and then you're also gathering because there are characters who are humans who have opinions um, and then having them as uh, vessels to sort of express various sort of subjective facts, which is tricky because that's not things that I necessarily believe, but that they were things that I heard in those interviews. So I, it's, you know, like I don't necessarily believe that one kind of surgery is better than the other, but certainly if you talk to anyone who has gone through it, they will have that opinion. So it's, it's delicate. I'm, I'm always terrified of people telling me that I, you know, got it wrong or that I have like, I'm trying to push an agenda, which I'm definitely not. But that's kind of what happens when you're, I mean, all fiction writers go through it. Like all fiction writers are writing about things that we don't know experiences. We haven't had, we're writing characters who are different genders to us, different races to us. And it's sort of part of the job. Well, also, so Lacey has a sister in the book, Mara, and whew, there was one particular conversation that happens, which I don't think gives too much away. Um, so Lacey goes and she doesn't tell her sister that she's had the test. So she knows she's carrying the mm-hmm. gene and obviously her sister ought to get tested too. But when she even mentions a mastectomy, oh my gosh, like the, some of the things that came out of her sister's mouth, like it's a... What I've, I've got it written here. Oh, one of them is truly the height of privileged hysteria. <laughs> yeah. Like the way I feel like you had a lot of fun with her, but I also can imagine that these opinions are real. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like yeah. I guess can you talk about like how did you come up with the sisters' opinions that were so strongly against getting a mastectomy. Yeah, I mean, again, through research and through kind of accessing those opinions that exist, um, mostly online and through, you know, reading different people's like message boards and things like that and just looking at what the... Because I think for... If you want to kind of dive into any uh, controversial topic, like it's a 
good idea to do a 360 on it because otherwise it does feel like it's didactic and you're just presenting one point of view. So I did need to have a character who, um, as Lacey was considering what to do with her gene mutation, whether she was going to get a preventative surgery or just ongoing surveillance for someone to say, absolutely not. Like that is a crazy idea. And um, he's 3000 reasons why. And I thought it would be interesting if it was her sister as opposed to a random doctor because a random doctor she could dismiss pretty much out of hand. And certainly there were some medical authority figures who, you know, did give her that point of view. But for someone that knows her pretty well and they've really been, um, they have gone through a pretty difficult childhood together to be telling her things like you're not old enough to be able to make this decision because Lacey's 25 and... Um, it is something that, you know, affects the rest of your life, obviously, and that it is there – ha- there has been a backlash against – there has been a rise in preventative mastectomies post-Angelina Jolie's um, op-ed, which makes a lot of sense because she brought it to the forefront, she humanised it. Um, celebrities are royalty in this country, so we really do look to them for – you know, the the way they're leading their lives. And she legitimized something for a lot of people. And also um, there's been a rise because insurance has changed and now it is covered by insurance. And um, that's relatively new um, in the context of like the last hundred years or whatever. And so it would make sense there has been a rise, but you could, if you were a cynic, look to that and think that it is the height of privileged in like of, of hysterical privilege or something like that um and that it's a you can see how someone might say like well that's crazy you do, there's nothing wrong with you um why would you do this you know it is it's a crazy oh, thing to do which is not re- yeah, yeah when you get the the statistics and I think I realise I've been in denial about my own family history and health I was like whoa I just need to revisit I guess, just the, our health. Yeah, it is. I mean, health is one of those really scary things because it reminds you unequivocally that you are mortal and you are going to die somehow. And especially if you're younger, like Lacey is twenty in her 20s, like, you know, we're in our sort of 30s. Like it's harder to imagine what that sort of looks like. But knowledge is power and at least if you know, mm. it doesn't sort of catch you unawares at which stage things can become a lot more painful and expensive, essentially. So, yeah, it is not – it's hard and it's – Mara, her sister Mara also makes one comment about that if you have this information, it'll start to control your life and you won't be making decisions. Like, it'll be making decisions for you, which really kind of lands home for Lacey because at that stage she knows she's BRCA positive and that's somewhat true, like – it really is defining her life and that knowledge is making a lot of decisions, good and bad, for her at that stage. But again, that is that is just the reality of her body and what's happening to her and whether you... But, you know, people are really different. My mum has a very different opinion on that. Like she's someone who doesn't really want to know as as much and sort of just feels... She feels quite strongly, and I don't want to put words into her mouth, but about the how much do you want to know and and how much is it helpful? And especially if you are, because she's more in her 60s now, um, you know, do you want to live a life led by fear and or a life that sort of is more um, less led by fear, I suppose? It's, it's complicated and everyone comes to it in their own way and there is no right or wrong answer. Like you come to something that you feel like this feels good for me, but... There are also a lot of women um, and some public young women who are um, who are, are BRCA positive and are definitely not getting a mastectomy and that is not something they're going to do and they're fine with that and that is a decision they've made and they and they would really I'm, I'm sure if you asked their advice they'd be like well I would I would say not to get it so like everyone has their own relationship with their bodies too with their exactly. sexuality and then with what you know, they would undertake to prevent something. Yeah. One thing I hadn't heard about before was a show and tell. Mm -hmm. 
What is that? So a show and tell is a um, in-person event that you attend as someone who has either is looking to have um, a preventative surgery or has had a surgery or a surgery as a result of breast cancer either way. And women get together and they, if you've had a surgery, you take your top off and other women look at your reconstruction or, or if you didn't get reconstruction and it's a way to show and tell um, about surgery. And it's something that is sort of organised through, um, you know, the preventative community and breast cancer communities because it's so, from my understanding, it's very hard to talk about it in the abstract, to talk about, well, what does this surgery looks like? What if I, there's a, you can go flat, you don't have to get reconstructive surgery. Like you can just stay like flat after um, a surgery. You can go bigger, you can go smaller, you can get this kind of nipple saving surgery. You can have different ways in, like there's a million different ways to do it. And it's something that this community does to empower the members of the community and to just share information and knowledge and literally show someone, well, this is what it looks like. Touch it, you know. It sounded incredible and touching and moving and, yeah, like you said, so empowering to actually, I don't know, I just feel like boobs feel so vulnerable, don't they? I almost feel like as a woman they're almost like our most vulnerable physical place. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like vagina is like hard and protected by like <laughs> bones or your pelvis or something. I mean, from the outside world. Yeah. Well, I think that's why breast cancer is so, and is the ideas of having you know, either a preventative or um, and anything to do with boobs is complicated because they are, they are a sexual organ They give us pleasure. They are part of, um, you know, what we think of when we think of a woman. Um, They are, you know, biologically how we breastfeed a child. Um, It's very different from your little finger or something that is more sort of somewhat neutral. And that's why I think it's so, it's just extra complicated when when it comes to boobs and what that means. Um, and also, you know, in our changing definition of, of women and what is a woman, and of course, a lot of trans women might not have boobs and they're women, and then a lot of women will will go flat after a surgery, they won't have boobs. A lot of women who get this surgery might not be able to breastfeed. Like it's just, it's very interesting, this sort of shifting and evolving idea of the relationship between breasts and woman. There's a couple of relationships that Lacey has in the book and flings and fun fun things too. But she has one where there's this kind of a very, um, an imbalance of power. And there's a great quote that her best friend says when she's kind of trying to give her advice. And it is sometimes in a relationship where there is a built-in power imbalance, like there is with you and Elan, it can be easy to prioritize the needs of the more powerful person. And then she goes on, you know, I'm not, I'm your friend, not your therapist. But I was like, oh, that's a pretty good line from a friend. Why was it important for you to have a relationship in the book that has this power imbalance in it, coupled with Lacey having to go through, you know, this kind of um, big decision? Yeah, I, the character of Ilan, and this won't spoil anything if you're reading the book. He's a, a fashion designer. He's older than her. He's um, relatively successful, well-known. She certainly knows who he is and is a fan of his through her work in the fashion industry. And he's Iranian and he's a fairly complex character, a complex man. And it's really interesting to write about power imbalances in relationships. It's it's sort of, it's certainly fun to write love stories where the characters are sort of equally met and that's in a way the stuff of a great um, romance because you can never really cheer on a relationship where you feel like one person is winning and one person is like serving the other person or something like that. But it was this relationship was inspired by I, I, I've had a relationship like this in the past with someone who was older than me and there was a power imbalance and someone who I admired greatly and it wasn't really a super healthy relationship for me. And I 
So I definitely came to this relationship with a lot of experience of how that felt, the ways you can sort of lie to yourself about what's going on versus what's really going on, um, how seductive the idea is to be with someone, especially if they're if you're a great admirer of their work and what they're sort of doing in the world. And I wanted, as Lacey kind of opens the door and goes through into wanting to have more experiences, the reality, I think the reality of that for her is they're not all good and sex can be, certainly it can be a lot of fun, but it can be complicated and there's a dark side to it as well. You can put yourself into situations that are dangerous emotionally, which is what sort of happens here. And, but it's not, the relationship sort of changes and evolves for both of them and where they both come to see what the other person means to them. But having, I wanted to sort of have it become more and more complicated for her, which is obviously the stuff of fiction where you never want it to be easy for anyone. You want to make it as hard as possible to get what they want. And so I really did enjoy writing their scenes. I I love writing sex and love scenes and um, any kind of romantic storylines, be they light romance or dark romance. And um, so all of their stuff together was fun. (laughs) It's so fun to read. But isn't it interesting? It made me, not that your writing didn't make me think of Fifty Shades of Grey, (laughs) but that kind of imbalance, that power imbalance and also how seductive it is and how, I mean, I've been in a relationship just like this one where at the end of it you think if they just asked me how I am. Yeah. Like it could have... I don't know, it could have gone on for so much longer even though that wasn't the right healthy thing to do and you just realise this is all on someone else's terms. Yeah. They don't they don't call to see how you are. They just call for one thing. Yeah. And then having to be a grown-up and realising that if you're willingly kind of going along with that dynamic, then you're kind of complicit, like you, you, you're getting hurt because you can't really stand up for yourself. Yeah, it's hard. It's complicated, especially because I think that's how, as young women, we're socialised without even really knowing it. And even through things that I think have good intentions to, in a heterosexual sense, like service a male's emotional needs, certainly sexual needs as well, but like that it's all about and that as women, we're always tasked with managing like the emotional needs of a relationship, like we're the ones that buy the birthday cards and plan the trips and like book the doctor's appointments and so on and so forth. Not in, Obviously, this is like a generalization, but um, it's. I think that it's really important, especially like when you're first entering into real relationships to understand that they are supposed to be a two-way street and that your partner is meant to be as invested in you as you are invested in them and that they care as much about your internal life as you care about their internal life. Because I feel like we can care so much about their feelings yeah. and their thoughts and their stresses and Making struggles. A, a relationship that works for yeah. them and, you know, and often we catch that in terms of because like I love too much or I care too much and it's like, well, maybe you just care the right amount and this person doesn't Not care enough. Like, you halfway. I know it also, so I read another really great book recently, Asymmetry. Oh, Have you read that by Lisa Holiday? Oh, my gosh. And it's about her affair with Philip Roth. It's a fiction, it's a novel, but it's pretty widely known that it's about that Mm -hmm. period in her life. And he wanted to keep her secret too. He even, Mm. well, I mean, in the book, so I'm saying the character, but he, because there's such an age imbalance, like 45 years or something, and he wants people to think that she's his research assistant. So he actually gets cards made with her name, with a different name on it for her that she hasn't even asked for or anything. Like he's kind of suggested and is like, and while we're on it, I had these cards made up for you so you can pretend to be someone else. Yeah. It's just so interesting to be reading these books kind of concurrently and just seeing, but also they're all the bits I want to read. Like the romance, (laughs) 
all I want to, I'm like, there's other bits like about the news and yeah. war in Iraq. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'll get back to that. Just get me to the, like, yeah. when they're in bed again. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to have characters in bed, let's face it. I know. But that's so fun because I feel like people don't write about sex enough in books anymore. Like, how do you, are you just writing and you're like, oh, here we go? Or yeah, do you kind of plan? I, um, I really like writing about sex and I think that sex is a way that you can really find out about characters. Like what we do in bed tells us so much about us. And I, I'm certainly not a prude. I have no, like, it doesn't bother me to write a sex scene. And it is still something that a lot of readers don't like. And so. What the readers don't like? Oh, I think it's definitely my number one thing that is like a complaint on, um, or that readers like warn each other about on Goodreads or other sort of review sites is like this, you know, book has a lot of sex in it. And it also doesn't have a lot of sex in it. Like if you look at the number of pages, you know, you know, I think it's like a 400 page book or 350, whatever, you know, we're talking about probably 10 pages, which is actually what you would classify a sex scene. So it's certainly not a 50 shades of gray in that sort of sense, but it's still very confronting for readers to read about real sex. And this isn't, um, and this is not a dark book. There's no, you know, no. we're not talking about sexual assault. Like we're talking about fun sex scenes and it is, there's still a real, I don't know, like history of, I don't know, people just find it <laughs> confronting. And I don't, like, I really like writing about it. And I mean, a lot of my, you know, my readers like it as well. Like people that like my books enjoy that. They enjoy the sexy stuff. Um, but I just am not a fan of books, especially if they are, if we, if like in a rom- any kind of like romance story where you are doing like a deep dive and in getting into characters and into like their romance and them falling for each other, the fade to black, the minute they get into bed, I'm like, always feel shortchanged. I'm like, come on, give yeah. me something. Like I've been with you, you know, and I don't want to just imagine what they do. Like, I want you to tell me what they're doing. Yeah, they're like, your characters. And, um, but, I, yeah, I don't feel um, any kind of squeamishness or I'm not like a I, – I think it's fun. I like it. <laughs> There's a really fun one, which is pretty early in the book, where she has a threesome mm-hmm. with these – kind of YouTubers or yeah. are they yeah, they're they're, YouTubers. are they tweeting all the time or they're like <laughs> doing video messages? Yeah. What inspired that? I, I find all that YouTube culture and like YouTube uh, celebrities pretty funny and, and kind of fun. I, like I follow a couple of them, not obsessively. I'm a little too old, I think, for um, the real, you know, YouTuber as celebrity uh um, you know, ex- that, how that exists in society now. But I just think it's funny to think about two people who are pretty intense social media influencers, what their personal life is like and what they would be like in bed and if that was something that they saw as part of their brand and part of what they wanted to share with their community um, because their fans like authenticity, then what that would be like to be a participant in. So it's a pretty comic scene and um, I guess it's a fairly like modern scene as well. Well, what I think is so fun about her bucket list is of course, as a reader, you think, what would my bucket list be? Sure, exactly. And would I, I was thinking that myself, I'm like, well, what would mine be? And what would it be? I don't know. I've been trying to think. (laughs) I just have never been interested in threesomes. <laughs> so that's when I was having, I was like, oh, I guess I could like imagine maybe. I'm like, or I think you start to think, what scenario would I need to make this sexy right. for me? Yes, yeah. Which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I might, I mean, be leaving New York soonish, so I kind of have a, a bit of a New York bucket list, but I thought... The boo bucket list is way more fun <laughs> than like where to go to brunch. Yeah, one yeah. last Maybe time. Maybe you can add some boo boo bucket list onto I your might. New York bucket list. Um, so another thing I found really interesting is that Lacey works at a trend forecasting agency, and recently I have a friend 
who works at J. Walter Thompson. She's kind of a futurist and oh, I yeah. always try and get great quotes from her on, you know, trends and things. Yeah. What was your research like for that? And I don't know, I always thought if I'd known about that job, it would have been so fun to get into it yeah. earlier. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's never too late, but what was your experience? So um, Lacey works as a junior sales uh, in, junior salesperson for a fictional trend forecaster called Hoffman House. Trend forecasting is an industry that exists to connect um, retailers, anyone who works in style, so obviously fashion, but also, you know, homewares, Target, um, you know, Apple, anyone that sort of works in any kind of style, to the publishers of the specific industry-specific trend books and there's also an online component. And so a trend forecaster is somewhat of the middleman between um, sort of selling, presenting these different books of trends to their clients who then purchase them. So all of these sort of retailers don't make up their own trends, they buy them. And because um, it's just sort of too much work for them to be doing it in-house. And so, for example, uh, a tr- like someone like Lacey would be presenting trends usually two years in advance and they things like color palettes and design like everything you can imagine um like styles of clothes um different textures and that they and should be doing like a presentation of various books these kind of beautiful hardcover like large glossy books to her um client at um you know, different retailer and they would purchase them and they sort of buy these colour palettes and things like that. And there's also uh, an online component where they're sort of um, most of, again, these different clients need to stay up to date on international trends and what's happening around the world. And um, they are chained to their desk and they can't be sort of finding out what's the newest cool fashion coming out of Sweden or whatever. So they're sort of, they are also the editors at Hoffman House are producing all of these reports and things like that. So that's sort of the background of where she works. And I had a great, made a great contact at a trend forecaster here in New York who just gave me all the skinny, all the goss on how it works. And again, I just sort of reached out, I Googled trend forecaster in New York and then um, sort of through, did a couple of interviews and sort of found this wonderful woman, Lindsay Smecker, who um, did a bunch of interviews with me and just kind of helped me build this fictional company, which is sort of an amalgamation of a few different companies um, and and kind of Lacey's role within it. And the reason why I wanted to put her as a trend forecaster is this book is really about the future and how we manage the future and how we we are all in the process of future management. And some of us are more actively involved in that process than others, um, whether you're a planner or whether you're a live in the moment kind of person. And of course, something like a BRCA uh, diagnosis is a forces you to think about how you will manage the future because it's a future problem. It's not a current problem. It's a future problem. And the idea that Lacey already works in managing the future and she's someone who has worked very hard by managing her future to get where she is because she's from like an economically depressed small town. She doesn't have like her family's sort of a mess and she sort of through all of her, you know, sheer hard work and tenacity landed where she is, but it's also a somewhat um, precarious position. She doesn't have, like, if something was to go wrong with her. And as, an you know, an immigrant living in New York, I'm sort of in the same position, although I am in a relationship with an American. So if something was to go wrong with me, like, what would happen? Where do you go? How do you handle that? And that's something that really throws her off as well. So there's sort of like a future theme that runs through the book as well. I love that. I Of course I hadn't thought of that, but it's, I think it's interesting to work out how we do manage futures or who, what type of people we are in that way. Um, okay, we'll cut this for a minute. I'm just going to see what else we should talk about. <laughs> I love that. In the book, Lacey has a very close friend, Steph, and of already mentioned some of the great things she says, but your book reminded me about how important female friendships are. And there's a great scene with them because I feel like you can, you know, the 
sometimes the friends you're closest to, you do treat them like a sister. Mm -hmm. But actually, Steph has to remind Lacey, I'm actually not your sister. I'm your friend. And you have to, like, you can't be so shitty to me. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to (laughs) remember that. And I actually kind of highlighted it and thought, note to self, um, you know, you have to relish those friendships but not kind of abuse them Mm -hmm. too much. Um, But there is another fun scene because Steph is like, well, almost like now that you might, you're in this breast cancer community, should we do a fun run? Yeah. Can you talk a bit about the role of female support systems in the book? Yeah. um, Female support systems are so invaluable, not just in our day-to-day life, but certainly when things go wrong, when things don't work out how they are supposed to. And it's interesting, this book definitely follows this sort of evolution of how certain women step up or don't as this plays out. And part of what makes that difficult is Lacey herself. Lacey is someone who sort of like me in some ways finds it hard to ask for help when things are really bad. I think that I'm fine with asking for help it's kind of like when things are going well, like come to my book launch, like it's a celebration of me. But I think that if and when things are tough, when, you know, you're having a real down moment, it's hard to reach out and ask for help. Some people are better than others. And Lacey is certainly not good at it all because she definitely equates that with weakness um, because she has had to be so strong throughout her uh, life so far. And Steph is someone who just tends to get a little over-involved in friendships and she's a very empathetic person, Um, you know, you cry, she cries kind of friend, which is lovely. But on the flip side of that, she is someone who... And Lacey sort of correctly identifies like she's probably going to start cry- like she'll be the one that loses it before I do sort of thing in this moment. And so in a way, Lacey has to kind of manage that friendship and sort of teach Steph, both of them do, of how they're going to work through this together. How, how like appropriate is it to be involved? When do you push through someone to say like, you know, I'm really here for you. But at the end of the day, um, and there are other women in the book who really do need Lacey's help. Um, she has makes another friend through the message boards, which is certainly a, tr- a true-to-life way that you would engage in this community if, if this ha- was a diagnosis that you shared. And that that becomes a very real situation that she has to step up and help out. And the importance of female support systems, I think, is invaluable and has historically been true, um, especially living in a patriarchal society and a, a society where we can't always rely on, you know, the government or, you know, the medical, like, sort of industry to look after us and that this is the very real way that women get through life. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Pretty much the women in my life are the reason that I get through life. (laughs) (laughs) One sitting right here. Here I am. (laughs) Here she is. Um, So Lacey has her boo bucket list. Yes. Have you got your own? (laughs) I'm in a a different position to Lacey. (laughs) Um, I'm in a committed relationship. So my, um, I don't... Spoiler alert, I don't really have a boo bucket list. Um, but I guess if I did, it would be probably things that would involve my partner. Um, we did, there is a scene that takes place at a play party or a sex party that my girlfriend and I attended as research for the book. And I actually just wrote a piece about it for Marie Claire. It was just published online if you're interested. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was a fun experience. It The long and the short of it was it kind of – it made me realise that having sex in public or really even h- hooking up in public at a party like that isn't for me. And But that was something that we went through together and that was really fun for us and – 
the the lead up to it was there was like a lot of energy in our relationship and we had a lot of conversations about like what were we up for what might happen we didn't have a lot of clarity around what it would be so it was hard to kind of think about it and we were in a monogamous relationship but we're sort of like you know we're open to what might happen in the future and and so that was something where I think that for me like I like the idea of trying things with my partner or doing things with my partner. I mean, I certainly have like like everyone the travel the travel bucket list, but um, for bib stuff, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll wear a really revealing dress. I did wear more booby dresses for this book tour period than I usually do. It just kind of felt right. I wore it like for the pre-launch party, I wore this quite like low cut dress that I would never usually wear. So yep. I love <laughs> That's that. how I dipped my toe in. How do you find out about where the sex parties are? Oh, this one was just one that um, happens in Brooklyn at a venue called House of Yes. So. Oh yeah. I've yeah. heard about that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably good to just think of the boundaries you would have and talk about that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for chatting. Oh, thank and you. And also, Angie. how can we follow you and follow the book um, as you kind of go on the press tour and everything? Yeah, um, well, I'm online at georgiaclark.com. You can follow me. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Georgia Lou Clark. I'll also plug my women's storytelling night, yes. Generation Women, which happens here in New York City in the Lower East Side once a month. We invite a woman in her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s to tell an original story on a theme. So it's a multi-generational storytelling night and I founded it and host it. We also have a sister show in Sydney. And um, my books are on sale there or at all good retailers. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Georgia. It certainly got me thinking about what I would do um, for my own boo bucket list had, you know, if something like this happened to me. I'd love to know what you would do with your boobs or with your life. Um, so get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.